Well, it's, it's, it's an honor to be, to be here tonight, and I hope that you'll be able to pick my African accent and be able to um, share the, the grace and glory that God has shown not only in my life, but also in the lives of many other people that I've been able to work with in my country, Malawi. Malawi is a small country, southeast part of Africa, Tanzania to the north, you have Mozambique to the east and south, and to the western side there's Zambia. So it's a landlocked country. Um, about one third of the country has fresh water, Lake Malawi, and it's the second largest lake in Africa, but also it has the most number of fish species in the world. And so it's a beautiful place uh, to go and visit, but I didn't grow up by the lakeside. And so when I came here, my first time here in America, everybody assumed, when they went back on the map, they assumed that I could swim. So I went to Tahu with this family, and uh, you know, someone pushed me in the water because they thought I could swim, man. Boy, I almost died there. Um, but I had to go back because I was too ashamed. I said, you know, I come from this country with this fresh water lake, and I don't know how to, to, to swim. So um, now, now if you throw me, I'm going to survive. So I know how to swim now. But Malawi, Malawi, the name Malawi actually is taken from the lake itself because Dr. David Livingstone, who was born in a small village in Scotland called Blanta, which is the city in Malawi where I come from, Blanta. It was named after his uh, 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 village in, in Scotland. When he saw from a distance what was happening during the summer, it's almost like the water is burning and there are these, these uh, flames coming out from the water because of the sun. And so uh, uh, the people around it, the people around the lake, they called it Nyasa. And so he went back and reported and say, I found Nyasa land. Nyasa, he didn't know. Nyasa means lake. So he was basically saying, lake, lake. I found lake, lake. Uh, but anyways, Nyasa land became eventually Malawi, uh, which means flames. And the flames are the depiction from the water vaporizing uh, during summer from the lake. That's how Malawi gets its name. Very quickly, I'm a very ordinary person, just like anybody else, pretty much. I was born in a family of five children. My mom and dad still together. They clocked 50 years in marriage this year. And somewhere where I was growing up, my, I discovered my dad was also a chemist. He would always come with the soil samples back home. And we said, our friends, as we were growing up, they'll come with snacks, with sweets, and all kinds of things. My dad came home with samples, with soil samples <laughs> from different parts of the country. And he was so fascinated. But you, you'd take these soil samples, go to the lab, and do analysis and find out you know, the pH and whatever, and make recommendation to farmers and to government what kind of crops to grow. So his first degree was with the University of Malawi, and later on, he came to America, to Auburn University in Alabama, you know, to do postgraduate training. So he was well established, and we had a good life. Until one day, he comes home and he says, God has called me. I want to go and serve the Lord. And we didn't know what that meant. Not too long after that, he got an early retirement from the civil service, and he went to seminary 
for two for a couple of years because he already had a diploma. He was he was studying uh, uh, on the side. He had a diploma in theology, and so he went for a couple of years. And before that, and then after that, he was sent to his first church. And his first church was in the one of the remotest parts of the country. And you can imagine, town boy, you know, we're enjoying our lives, and all of a sudden, because of this decision by dad to serve the Lord, here we are in the village. There was no running water, no electricity, no good school. It was chaos. And I never understood why anybody would allow his children to go through that in the name of serving the Lord. I said, how, how good is this God that he finds ourselves dumped in this place, middle of nowhere? And to be honest, I started growing a resentment. So my dad served there for five years. In fact, he was a minister for like 15 years or so. And there I was as a pastor's kid, but never really connected with God. It's one thing to know about God. It's one thing to know God. And there are many people who come to church and know about God. They can tell you verses, but they don't have the personal connection with him. And that was my situation and my story. Anyways, I was a brilliant student in class, and I thought I would go to this university and study the, stu the things I wanted to study and you know, make my own money, become rich, and do my own stuff. Nothing to do with this ministry stuff. Until one day, after I'd finished my high school, there was a crusade. And ironically, my father had invited my grandfather to come and be the main speaker, who was also, he's, he's, he died, but he was a pastor. And he was a missionary to Scotland, very gifted speaker. And so he was going to come to the country and preach. And everybody was excited about Reverend Chunga coming and, you know, a senior to come and preach at this crusade. So he, he stayed with us at our home. And I remember the morning he said, ah, you know what, I need to go and talk to all the elders who are going to be taking care and discipling these people who may convert uh, from the crusade. And I looked at him and I said, can I, can I come up? Can I come with you? I was more proud of him because he was kind of a legendary name in the country more than anything else. And he said, yeah. And I knew I asked him, if I asked my dad, he wasn't going to allow me. This was a meeting for elders. So I asked him directly because I knew that if he said yes, my dad was not going to come and intercept the invitation. <laughs> so I was allowed to go. So I went there. I sat there in the corner. And uh, he started sharing about God. Amazing story of how God used him in his years of ministry. But as he wind up, there's something he said. He said, some of you may think I'm special. I'm not. It's not about our ability sometimes. It's really about our availability. If you make yourself available for God's use, you can be amazed with what God can do. Even with people who have been disqualified in the eyes of all. Oh, Remember the story of Moses? He didn't think he could speak. He thought he was disqualified in the eyes of people. 
but not so, not so in the eyes of God. So a message of encouragement to all of you who think you're disqualified because of all kinds of infirmities or all kinds of disabilities. Because in the eyes of God, nothing is impossible. He can even use the stones to glorify his name. So, after he finished sharing my heart, something just really got to my heart. I left the meeting early, went to my room, knelt beside my bed, and I cried. And I said, Lord, you win. I give my heart to you. I've been acting stubborn, but I realize that I need you more than I need anything else. But I said, I'll make a promise. I don't want to tell anybody about my conversion. And if this is true, which I've learned today that is true, I want other people to see it, and I don't want to tell them. I've always had those kind of strange prayers with my God. But anyways, <laughs> three days after I said that prayer, my young brother came up, and I used to fight a lot with my young brother, and he's a very handsome boy and everything, and always thought I was inferior, you know. And he said, hey, he was talking to everybody in the family, he says, what, what has happened to Bayana? I don't know, but the last couple of days, he's just different. There's just something about him just different. And like everybody was in agreement. I remember I didn't say a word, and I ran back to my room, and I cried, and I said, God, I thank you because it is real. You know, I don't believe that when you have an encounter with God, that it can remain unnoticeable for long. It is not possible to have God and remain the same. It is not. Change is inevitable when God takes over control of your life. And so there I was. I was a new believer. I, did, I didn't know. I, I tried to study the Bible. I didn't know where to start. I was just open it and just read as many chapters as possible until I went to bed. And it was at that time that I was also seeking, Lord, what do you want me to do? I remember one day I'm hanging out with my friends and I saw this uh, little brochure. And it was written, it was, there was this American college in Malawi was offering a college degree um, in communications, which I already, always had a passion for. But the moment I saw the name of the college, which was African Bible College, I said, this is not for me. I said, I'm a child of God. And I believe in that. But anything to do with ministry? No. Because remember, I'd been traumatized by my experience <laughs> as a child going to the village. And I said, you know what? Ministry means poverty. And I, I, I don't want that. I'll work hard. Lord, I, I'll be a good Christian. I'll pray. I'll, I'll give to the church. I, I'll help out. But not actively committing my life 100% to the Lord. No. Lord, that, no, spare me that one. And so I remember that night. I, before I went to bed, I opened the scripture and I turned just randomly to Psalms. And the Bible was talking about how even young lions suffer from hunger, but not those that trust in the Lord. And I felt rebuked. Like almost the word of God was saying, you of little faith, no man who trusts the Lord shall be in want. But because God, Jehovah Jireh, will provide for their needs and is faithful. He has promised and you'll do it. I felt rebuked. And guess what I did? I took a piece of paper 
and I said, I'll apply. So I applied to African Bible College. Following day, put it through the mail and forgot about it. Well, like a month later, I got a response. I'd been picked. Went to second round of interviews. I passed. And my dad asked me, he said, you want to go to African Bible College? I said, yeah. It's an expensive private college. And he says, who's going to pay for you? Now you can imagine your father asking you, <laughs> who's going to pay for you? And it's like one of the strangest questions I ever got from my dad. And I remember I was blank. I didn't know what to say. And I said, he who has called me there will provide for me, dad. For the first time, I'd, I'd never fasted. I hated the idea of fasting. And I said, today, I'll try fasting. So I took off that day, I still remember, into the woods. And the whole day, I was just praying and reading scriptures and singing hymns and just claiming God's promises upon my life and just, you know, asking God to continue sanctifying my life to become more and more like Christ and less and less of myself. And I came back that day back home. I was so hangry. Had a glass of milk, went to bed. For a morning, I'm playing with, um, I'm playing with my, uh, I like playing soccer, you know, so I'm juggling soccer ball with my twin brother, and um, a, a couple, an older couple, from a town called Sparta in Illinois, uh, USA, uh, which was visiting the mission center where my dad was working, you know, came and said hi to us and went to, 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 to talk to my parents. Like 30 minutes later, they called us, invited us there. And I still remember the, the Logans, that's the name of the couple. Uh, Joseline, the wife, said, hey, Nasa and Bayana, we've, we've worked with people here in Malawi, and we think you're one of the most wonderful young men that we've met. And um, my husband and I want to do something special for you. So ask for one thing that you want us to do for you, and we'll do it for you. And I smiled, and she said, why are you smiling? I said, because I want to go to college. <laughs> and they said, oh, so you're the one who wants to go to college. And I said, which college? So I explained, and this couple committed to pay for fees for the entire four years of my college. And this was the day after my first fasting experience. I was like, wow, is that how God works? <laughs> I think I was more... I was more afraid <laughs> than excited. But anyways, that was my story. And I went to college. So it was first year I was in college, and second year I was a good student. And uh, I was picked to be in the, major, in, in the communications major. And I was writing a radio, television, print, and everything else. And only 10 out of the whole class of 40 that were selected to, to go and do communications. And the pride crept in. I was one of the best. You know, I was going to get out of this college and go do my own stuff. Until one night, as I was preparing for an audience psychology exam, case study of Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> big book, and I'm reading about midnight, something just struck me. Why is it? that all the creativity, the intelligence, and communication skills you have have got to be used for your own benefit. Isn't there a, a bigger good? So you look at Oprah Winfrey and all her success in media, then what? 
I closed the book, went outside my, my, my room, and this is back in college, and I remember just sitting out there, seeing the stars on a soccer field, and I just cried. And I said, Lord, no. I knew the calling had come, and I said, Lord, no. I said, Lord, no. I'll be faithful to you in everything else, but spare me from ministry. After about an hour, we went back to my room, and I went to bed. That week was the most horrible and peaceful week in my entire college life. Until I remember on a Thursday morning during tea break around 10 a.m. As everybody else was going to the dining room to have a cup of tea, I went back to the soccer field. I knelt down. I still go there once in a while. I still remember the place. And I said, Lord, you win. I will use every bit of my talent and creativity for your glory. But promise me one thing, that you'll provide for me. And I said, I'm just going I'm, I'm to be honest. This has been something that scared me. Provide for me. And if this is real, I'll not tell anybody that you're calling me to this. Let's see. Prove yourself. I remember just having, that's part of being a young, immature Christian, I guess. But I saw, I shared with nobody. Meanwhile, that summer, a young man from Stanford working on a, on a startup company in the Silicon Valley promises his friends, guys, if this invention works out and gets bought, I'm going to send all of you to, we're going to go to Africa to visit our friend who is teaching PE and sports evangelism at an African Bible college. What about that? So the guys are like, oh, oh, cool. That sounds like a good deal. 17 people. And the invention went through, sold it for a lot of money. He paid the air ticket for 17 people to fly over to Malawi. And one ticket is like $3,000. And went over there. And guess who they met? The student called Bayana, who was tasked to work with the American team during the one week they were going to be there. So they were playing basketball and all kinds of things, sports evangelism. And I was the person kind of guiding them, but also translating and interpreting. And that's how I got the contact, the US contact. And I remember when they were coming back, when the group was coming back, they said, we saw Bayana with a tennis racket. Do you think we can invite him over at the Peninsula Covenant Community Center and be an intern in tennis? In tennis? And they were still flying back home and two people agreed and influenced everybody. And within two weeks of that conversation, I was in Redwood City <laughs> on the tennis court. And a very strange experience with these kids who honestly, and I, I hope you don't take offense, but they've never had a black African-American coach, or African coach, not African-American, but African coach, you know? And I remember the, one of the first questions they asked me, I said, where do you come from? I said, Malawi. Where's Malawi? Is it in Egypt? I said, no, Egypt is a different country. Malawi is southeast part of Africa. And they asked me to say, well, how does it feel to have your kind of hair? And I still remember responding to them with a big smile. Oh, how does it feel to have your kind of hair? And they sat in a corner and they discussed and said, can we touch your hair? I said, you can touch my hair on condition that I touch yours first. 
So again, they went to a corner, there were like six kids, and they, they, they conferred and came back to me and said, oh, you can touch our hair. So I, it's not like these days where cameras all over. I don't know what it would have looked like, a black African coach with his hands all over <laughs> American hair as kids. But, but afterwards, you know, they touched my hair, they were so happy, and we made an instant connection. And that summer, was voted pretty much the best tennis coach in the camp, and they asked me to come back the second year. That was my initial connection. Now, whilst I was here, somebody asked me, said, would you grudge, when you finish this tennis, can you stay here? And, because I'd gone all the way to get a USPTA certification, professional uh, coaching, and I could make a living out of tennis, coaching professional. And someone said, why do you want to go back home? I said, because God called me. And he said, why? Why did he call and said, why can't you tell me? Because if I tell you, to, it's going to look like I want to ask you to give me money to go save the Lord. And he said, stop on young man. And I remember that conversation kept on. I went back to, to Malawi, came back another summer. And one day, I just told him, this, this is the dream. This is what I want to do. I have been part of a small ministry called Wings of Hope Malawi. Wings of Hope, the name Wings of Hope comes from Psalms 91, verse 4. Under his wings, he'll cover you with his feathers. And for me, I look at the desperation, the poverty, the suffering in, in Malawi, but I look at something else. I can get $20 million from, uh, from America and go and give it to poor people in Africa and to the, to, the, uh, to the orphans and to the widows. But is that going to really solve long term their problems? No. Most of that money gets stolen anyways. There's a bigger problem in Africa. There's a bigger problem in Malawi. There's a bigger problem in America. And that's the problem of sin. And I said, I don't want to raise money in America to go and help poor people. I'll raise money to go do one function, which is the preaching of the gospel, the healing of souls, the mending of broken people, so that they have an inheritance in God's kingdom. They become heirs with Christ, an inheritance that cannot be taken away. A hope that goes beyond the physical boundaries and the life that we have, that we see now. And that's what I've been called to. And how do I do that? So I'm on radio. And I started on the national radio. They gave me a two-minute a, a, a two uh, slot straight from college. Gave me this two-minute slot. Six days a week. Because on Friday there was a Muslim who was coming in for the, the Islamic reflection. This is a national radio, so you know they try to cut it for everybody. And I was doing it six days a week. And that became very famous. And that transitioned me into Wings of Hope show on, 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 on the national radio. And before I knew it, the leading media company in Malawi called The Times Group, which started in 1895, you know, by some British settlers there, invited me if I could start writing in their paper, contributing a religious column. And I started my Wings of Hope column in the paper. 
And before I knew it, they invited me to be in prime time on their TV, Times TV. And now I'm also on their radio, Times Radio. And I started doing youth ministry, sports ministry, getting young men from the street, playing soccer with them because I was a, I was a soccer player before I gained this tummy. <laughs> and, and I would share Christ with them. As I speak, I have one player from that, from that ministry who is playing in the national soccer team for Malawi. And he still calls me coach. And I call him after the game. I saw you on TV. Good job. And one thing that God I saw was also preparing me, and I've been doing over the years at that time, was teaching the truth. Teaching the doctrines of grace. Grounding people in the word of God. Because the churches are there. and People are generally religious. It's a culture thing. But again, just like I was, no personal connection with Christ. So I said, gathering all these young people every Friday night and just opening you know, the Bible and just teaching them. And they'll go back to their churches and they'll go like, Bayana, what you're teaching us is different. That's not what they're teaching us there. And I knew that when the word of God begins to take root in your life, you begin to discern the other Gospels. You become offended by untruth. And you begin to be affirmative on what you believe. Almost holy indignation, holy anger against false doctrine. And so in a nutshell, I guess that's what I am doing and what I have been doing. And allow me um, to just open the scripture to one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, the book of John, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I want someone just to quickly read from verses 60 to 67. Uh, to 69. John chapter 6, verses 60 to 69. Someone can? Yeah, someone read it. Uh, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, they said to him, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him and he said this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him 
So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Let me just lay a little bit of context and background here. So, Jesus is now famous, famous for doing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's doing all kinds of miracles. And people now are beginning to follow him. He's become like a public figure. And so they follow him in their thousands. And on one sunny afternoon by the, the Sea of Galilee, they're there, seated, hungry. And Jesus does one of the most famous miracles that we have known in the history of the Bible. He feeds over 5,000 of these people. And when that happened, everybody was excited. They were excited to the point that they wanted to make him king. What was the response of Jesus? He said, he ran away. In Africa, that's what politicians do. They use food to get into power. They keep people poor so they can keep on the dependent syndrome. And when they give them food, they look at them as their gods and saviors. And they look at that as a way of climbing into authority by using their votes and sustaining this dependent syndrome. And Jesus just walks away. He goes to the other side of the lake. These people start following him. They start looking for him. After a few days, they catch up with him on the other side of the lake. And the first thing Jesus says to them is, Ah, you're looking for me because you had your fuel the other day, huh? Now, for, if I were a politician and a leader, I would be thinking, these are the people who love me so much. These are my, these are my fans. If it was on Facebook or social media, these are my followers. These are the people who hit the most likes. You're going to be nice to them, right? And Jesus says, you're looking for food, huh? And he begins to tell them how there's better food than what you're looking for. Just like your parents. You guys had manna, they had manna, and they died. But if you have bread, this bread, you should have eternal life. And they're wondering, which bread is it? And he says, I'm the bread of life. And he starts talking about how those that have been called to him by the Father, he should not lose them. And he's talking about all this stuff, and they're confused. They can't understand. In verse 68, where Stephen just read, verse 60 rather, the Bible says, on hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Well, God's word is a double-edged sword, and it penetrates to the bone and marrow. It humbles human pride. God's word cannot be understood outside the discernment of God's grace. And that's why you have some of the smartest people, but they fail to comprehend some of the most basic truth about God and his kingdom. Because intelligence is not enough. See the words, hot teaching, who can accept it? Almost implying from deductive reasoning 
we accept that which we find ourselves comfortable with. We accept that which is easy to understand, that which we can resonate with. Anything that's outside our understanding, we can't accept. You talking about our father Abraham in that manner? No. You talking about yourself being the bread that we should eat to have eternal life? No. And if it doesn't make sense, it's not going to be acceptable. But that's exactly what God's word is about. It's outside human sins. We're living in a society where people want to understand what you're preaching about. And if you say anything that does not resonate with them, they get offended. In fact, they will not accept it. They'll push you away. Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, and we're talking about all the other people who had been following him, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? In verse 61, does this offend you? Does this make you uncomfortable, what I just shared? Of course it did. God's truth will offend any sinner. I remember being invited to speak at the University of Malawi, it's a huge campus, the biggest university in the country, and I was invited to go and preach, and it's packed, thousands of students. Some of them completely non-believers. It was just a, it was a, a celebration day for the university, and they, they decided they also, one of the activities was also to have like a one-hour sharing. And so the students had asked if I, if I could go there and, and share. And I stood there and looking at the animosity, the hostility in the room, I still remember. And I said, there's no way I'm, I'm climbing there. Like almost everybody else who tried to do, to say anything about God, they would boo them. They would jeer them. And this is like 10 minutes before I go there and, <laughs> and I'm saying, Lord, I didn't ask for this. I was just praying, God, give me the courage and the confidence. I walked up there when it was my turn. I stood there and I turned. And on one balcony of, the, of this huge auditorium were the most, uh, like the toughest students. I looked at them and I remember, I remember I saluted them like that. And I said, how are you doing? And they said, we're fine. <laughs> and um, I looked at everybody and I said, I've got a story to share. And I began sharing God's word. I remember when I was about to finish, the room was in total silence. You could hear a pin drop. And I turned to the toughest man. And I said, you consider yourself tough, huh? God knows each one of you how many hairs you have in your head. He knew you before you were born. 
We are all but nothing before his sight. And those people who call themselves tough like you are, they're the ones he's looking for. There was a guy called Saul. He was tougher perhaps than you. He was killing believers. Like literally, God gave me the boldness. I just stood there. And these are the most feared gangs of the campers. And I spoke to them and one by one I saw them breaking as I just concentrated speaking to them with confronting them with God's truth. But I tell you, it is not easy. Because most of the time, we want to be loved. We want to be invited again to the campus. We want to be invited again on the radio. We want to be invited again to Redwood City. So we end up compromising the content, editing some stuff. I remember one time I came to America to speak at this church. It was a very wealthy church. And they told me to say, the pastoral team sat me down and said, but you can't talk about rich people. Well, the passage was about, you know, it was about uh, the rich and the poor and everything. It says you can't, uh, I, didn't, I didn't pick the passage. And <laughs> they picked the passage. And they said, but you can't really, you know, you need to be careful. We have a lot of rich people around this area and we don't want to offend them. Offend them? This is God's word. God has got no. You think God cares that you're in Silicon Valley? You think God looks at you and says you got a lot of money and so I'm not going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lower down the standards of truth because you guys give a lot to the church? No. Silver and God belong to him. And I wasn't too popular after I shared God's word that day. <laughs> but that's exactly what Jesus is asking. He says, are you offended? Are you offended by what I've just shared you? And he says, what more? This is just a tip of the iceberg, what I'm telling you. There's greater stuff going to happen. What more if you saw me ascending into heaven... How much more are you going to be offended? This, verse 62, he says, Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Verse 64, Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. So 65, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Even after seeing the great things from God, you still don't believe in what I'm telling you? Well, I can, I can unpack it for you. Nobody can believe unless my Father in heaven enables them to understand what I'm talking about. We were dead in sin. I was dead in sin. Unresponsive to the core of the gospel. It had to take the grace of God to touch the pride and the stubbornness of a young Malayan boy and call him, not only to himself, but also to the mission field. And from this time, the Bible says in verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. People just walked away. 
This was too uncomfortable. No, we don't like this. They walked away. But did Jesus stop preaching the gospel and the truth because people walked away? No, he did not. He did not because he was not in a popularity contest. This is not a popularity show. How many likes? How many people like you? How famous it is? No. He's going to share the truth regardless of how many people are going to be in the, in the auditorium. And that's what you and I are called to do. And sometimes preaching the truth can be a very lonely journey. Because people walk away from you. I remember one time in 2005, a young broadcaster had my Windsor Hope show. And at that time, HIV AIDS was big in Malawi. People were dying left, right, and center with, with, with thousands, hundreds of thousands dying of HIV AIDS. And as a young man, I came up with a program, Wings of Hope, call on, Wings of Hope on, on national radio, and it was a 30-minute show. And I said, I want to talk about God, sex, and HIV AIDS. The director of the radio station, the national radio station, said, no, you can't. You can't talk about God, sex, and HIV in the same program. I said, yeah, I will. And they said, no, you can't. And I said, can I do a sample program? And they said, okay, you do a five-minute sample program. I said, no, I want a half hour. He says, no, I can't give you a half hour to talk about God and sex and HIV AIDS. So I left as a young man in my early 20s, and I went and did, out of pure stubbornness, a half-hour show in my home studio. I came at night, and I remember praying around the entire station, a huge campus, and I prayed. I said, God, this place is going to be used for your glory. We're going to tell the world that there's another way of fighting HIV AIDS. And that's through God and biblical living. And so I came the following day, handed in my, those days we had tapes, tapes, cassette tapes. So I handed in my cassette tape. One week later, I came back and said, did you listen to it? He says, I didn't listen to it. I said, fine, I was frustrated. Went back praying and fasting. And I remember he listened to it. He made a mistake to listen to it. And he called me. And he said, Bayana, where are you? I said, I'm home. And he said, I just listened to your sample program. It's good. I want it on air this weekend. And I said, about God, sex, and HIV AIDS? He says, yes. <laughs> so I started. I started and eventually ended up into prime time. And when the National AIDS Commission, which was the biggest body that was given all the global funding from the money from elsewhere, you know, around the globe, trying to fight HIV AIDS in third world countries. They were trying to identify how they could use radio or media to fight HIV AIDS. So they told the national radio, the national radio, can you give us our 20 programs from which we can sample from, and we want to pick at least a few that we can give support, financial support. And the director said, we want you to, 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 to give in your program, but right, it's a one hour show, not 30 minutes. And I said, I can't do that. It's a 30 minute show. And he said, also, can you remove the God part? Don't, don't say you, you include God. Just say you talk about HIV AIDS. And I remember I went to write, and I put everything about God, everything about it was 30 minutes and not one hour. And it was sent in. He was shaking his head. I'll tell you, this was 2005. The results came back a couple months later. And out of all the 20 program submissions that done, Wings of Hope was the only program sponsored by the National AIDS Commission. Wow. And oh boy, did that not give me confidence that I'm not going to back down. 
And God will still create a way. If it is his ministry, he will provide. It's his name that is at stake. And so there are many, many times that people will walk away. That people will feel like they, can't, they don't want to be associated with you. That they want you just to change a little bit so they can fit in in the culture. Fit in a bit in the agenda of the world. But throughout the scripture, God is calling us to be the light of the world. To be the sword of this dying world. And you're going to stand there and proclaim God's truth. Undiluted. Uncompromised. As offensive as it, it is. Because it is in the offensive nature of scripture that the healing of a sinful man is found. And there, if you, if you look at the conclusion of the passage, in verse, and this is where I'm going to wind up, in verse 68, no, before that, sorry, verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Now, everybody else has left. It's just the 12 disciples left there. You know, if it were me, I would say, oh, wait a minute. Just three days ago, I had all these thousands following me. They're all gone. I need to adjust about my preaching. I need to do something better. And now I have these 12. I better keep them very dearly to me. Because I can't even afford just to lose this 12. And he says, do you also want to go? The, do the door is open. Like that's, that's how committed to truth Jesus was. Even if it meant just one person staying in the pews, he was gone to stay and stand and preach the truth. <clears throat> you have no idea what it means to, to come over here a couple of years, uh, every couple of years and try to raise support for the work that I'm doing. And everybody else, when you're talking about what do you do in Africa and you tell them about the preaching of the word, God's word, they're not as excited. You know what excites Americans? You know what excites Silicon Valley? Tell them about some sick children in Africa. Tell them about hungry people. Tell them about orphans and widows. Tell them about the poverty. And I vowed I'll never speak on a podium about the poverty of Malawi because there's a bigger poverty that I attend to, which is the poverty of the soul. And as I grew in the faith, and I was visiting America, I preached more about God and God's word and less about the poverty of Africa. And I saw how some supporters just walked away. They went to other organizations. They went to other ministries because they wanted to support the poor. Now, I'm not saying we should not take care of orphans. In fact, the book of James says, no better religion. James chapter 1 verse 27, than taking care of orphans and widows. But if you ask me, that's the responsibility of the local church. When the local church is properly grounded in the word of God, it begins to be aware of responsibilities, including taking care of its orphans and widows. The mere fact that we're still relying on America to, help, to, to, to support the orphans should tell you that there's something missing in the church in Africa, which as someone described, it's like a river, so many miles long and few inches deep. 
Because people have come with prosperity gospel and told people you're going to be rich. God is going to take care of every little problem that you have. God is going to heal you. God is going to give you everything. And people come to Jesus on that, on that premise. And a few months down the line, they discover they're still sick. They're still poor. They're disillusioned. And they walk away from the faith. My identity as a child of God is not dependent on my good health. Whether in pain, in health, whether in suffering, whether in richness, my identity as a child of God rises above and is engraved for eternity. In God's kingdom. And nothing will take that away. Jesus says, nobody can take away those that God has enabled to come to me. Nobody. Nobody. Not even their poverty. Not even their suffering. So that's what you face. That people walk away. So they walked away and Jesus says, you know what? Do you want to go away as well? And verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Verse 69, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And that's where we're going to wind up. To whom shall we go? To whom shall we look up to? Not man, for sure. Not mortal man. No. When the Bay Area is crumbling, when Africa is mourning, who shall we tend to? When families are breaking apart and death is cruising through our families, who shall we go to? When our societies are more divided than ever and compromise is the agenda of the day and the motto of everybody who wants to be politically correct, who shall we go? Where shall we go? Who shall we tend to? My experience with following Jesus has been a call not only to follow him as plan A, but to follow him as plan B as well. There's nowhere else we shall go. And that's the position that God wants to get us to. A position where you no longer believe in yourself. Where you no longer put your importance or significance in your wealth or education. No. But where you realize that without God, man is but nothing. Where we put all our trust in him and him alone. And say, God, we need you every minute of this existence. So may God continue blessing you watching over you as a church. You are going to be isolated. You're not going to be very famous sometimes for speaking the truth. I've had conversations with Steve, and I know some of the drama that has characterized some of his ministry here, especially in the Bay Area. But is it, how different is it from what we see here? For speaking the truth, people are going to walk away. They're not going to put you in the news. They're going to ostracize you. 
But then where else shall we go? Where else shall we go? I have a small gift as I wind up that I would like to, to give Steve come up. The book of Ephesians tells us about the, Ephesians chapter 6 tells, tells us about the shield of faith. As you fight this battle in this bay area, my brother, you need the shield of faith. You need the word of God. You need the prayers of those that are faithful. But above all, you have the hope. Because Christ promised that he's going to be interceding for us. Amen. And I'll quickly just read Ephesians chapter 6. Above all, carry the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is God's word. Offer prayers and petitions in the spirit all in all time. Stay alert by hanging in there and praying for all believers, including Bayana. <laughs> and in Africa, some of you may know this. So this is a shield. And back in the day, of course they make it bigger. This is kind of a... Uh, kind of uh, a miniature of it. <laughs> but this is how they would fight. They would have the spear, and this is how you protect yourself. So when someone throws their arrows or whatever it is, this is how you protect yourself. And then occasionally you look, and then you open, you throw your spear, and you attack on the offense. And so this is a reminder of the shield of faith. And may God bless you. Thank you. Let me, let me pray for you, brother. Father, we thank you for Bayana. We thank you for his heart. Thank you for the truth that he shared with us tonight. We pray for his ministry, his trip back home. I think on Saturday, Lord, we pray that you go before him and allow his uh, travels to be safe. Lord, we pray that even for opportunities on the plane in which he can communicate the gospel of Christ with those around him. And, and Lord, we do pray that you would just um, continue to work through this man who's dedicated his life to serve you. And Father, as a church, we, we will definitely be praying about how we can um, support him in the future as well. And, and Lord, we, we look forward to hearing more about his ministry and, and how you're going to use him when he returns home. We pray for his family, his two daughters, and we pray that you would just continue to minister to them and protect them protect their hearts. And Lord, we thank you for this, this visit all the way from Malawi to Redwood City. And what a, what a blessing it's been to get to know this man. We thank you and we uh, pray that you would just bless our evening now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.